Welcome to The Foundry, where leaders are forged daily. Each week we investigate themes of leadership, entrepreneurship, and mindset with some of the greatest minds in real estate. And now, the data scientist of real estate, George Roberts. Welcome back, entrepreneurs. Today, I have the pleasure of interviewing Chris Larson, founder and principal of Next Level Income. Chris has been investing and managing real estate for over 20 years. Well, as a well, still a college student, he bought his first rental property at age 21. From there, Chris expanded into development, private lending, buying distressed debt, as well as commercial offices and ultimately syndicating commercial properties. He began syndicating deals in 2016 and has been actively involved in over $1 billion of real estate acquisitions. Chris is passionate about helping investors become financially independent. So with that, welcome to the show, Chris. George, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Great to talk to you today. Yeah, well, you know, I want to say that unlike most of the people that I interview, you really seized the opportunity to live life on your own terms early in life as a cyclist. So you were able to live your dreams first as a uh, on the Virginia Tech cycling team, level one cyclist. Uh, you trained with Lance Armstrong, trained at the Olympic Training Center, and, you know, all these things, your quest for excellence, uh, all the success, what did that teach you about happiness? About happiness? Yeah. Um, yeah. It's uh, yeah, a couple of things went through my head, as you said that, you know, you kind of flash back and you think about it and you're like, you live your dreams and, you know, it's interesting. Our dreams change and evolve over time. And I think it's like a lot of things, you know, like how we uh, really value people and our partners and different things also evolve over time as we mature and what we want, what our dreams are when we're younger, isn't necessarily maybe what's best for us as we get older, but those dreams and those experiences end up creating that person that really, that does it. So you can't really have one without the other. And yeah, I always say, George, that I was lucky that I wasn't better as a cyclist. And what I mean by that is I got to race at, at a high level. I got to, like you said, I got to train with Lance Armstrong. I got to race um, with a lot of his teammates over the years. I got to stay and train at the Olympic Training Center, compete in the Junior Olympics. Um, I got to do 95 plus percent of what you can do as a professional cyclist, even though I, I, when my team turned pro, I ended up quitting that year. Um, but I learned so much from it. I learned the discipline. I learned delayed gratification. I learned the importance of health. I learned teamwork. I, I learned, you know, the, the benefit of being passionate about something and pouring your heart and soul into something. I learned time management you know, training 20 hours, 15, 20, even sometimes 30 hours a week and going to college full time, you have to be really good with your time um, to do all those things. So I learned how to do all those things, which really, you know, laid the groundwork for future happiness. But I also learned something else. I learned that, that racing and competing and spending my life doing that really didn't make me happy. So I'll give you an uh, example. My friend passed away between my freshman and sophomore year in college. And as, as um, I say in my book, which I'm happy to share with you, if you're listening here today, we'll give you a free copy, but I just wanted to race my bike. And I went back to school. I poured my heart and soul into it. I didn't get good grades that year. I was at, at Virginia Tech, as you mentioned, in an engineering program, very hard, very challenging. Um, I was never the smartest guy you know, in the, in the class. So I had to work really hard to, to keep up. And that taught me a lot of things as well. But when I came back to school, 
and I quit racing after that following year, it, it, what led to it was that I won my friend's memorial race the second year in a row. And I didn't just win it. I dominated it. I, I literally lapped the field on a two and a half mile circuit. I got a flat tire because somebody threw tacks on the road. I got spit out of the back of the pack. My entire team waited for me. They, they waited for me. I caught them. I went by them through the pack out the front of the pack again and won the race. I mean, it was one of my best wins ever. And I'm not bragging. I'm just telling you what yeah. happened. And do you know what I felt when I won? Tell us. Nothing. I felt yeah. nothing. And I would argue that the opposite of love isn't hate, it's indifference. And that's how I felt. I felt indifferent. I was like, why am I doing this? And I went back to school and it really bothered me, kind of, kind of that feeling of indifference. And you can't train at that level for anything and suffer and sacrifice at that level if you're indifferent. So it taught me that achieving what I thought was my dream of being successful as a cyclist did not make me happy. And there was a lot that went into it, obviously. Um, you know, so I went back to school, you know, quit racing and, you know, I've, I've always remembered that I've, I've since taken racing back up again. I kind of had my second, um, career as an age, age graded cyclist. I started racing again before I turned 30 and then, um, 30 up into my mid thirties and raced, uh, nationally state level state champion, went to the world championships, as a uh, age graded cyclist. And, and that made me happier because I was doing it on my own terms. And I knew that I was doing other things like having a successful career, having a family. And I really valued the connections that I made through the sport. And really that's what happiness is about, George. It's the experiences that you have, not the results and the connections that you make. But what's interesting is that I don't think you can have the deep experiences and the deep connections without striving for the results. Yeah, that's very deep. So you obviously took a great deal from your cycling career, uh, being a champion, understanding the values of time management, etc. You also had a career in engineering. And I know that you credit that with a lot of your later successes. What were you able to take out of that? Yeah. So I always joke, I say, you know, like I was saying, like I wasn't, I wasn't the most talented cyclist. I'm not, I wasn't the smartest engineer. I joked that my, my advisor pulled me aside and said, Hey, Chris, um, you're not smart enough to be an engineer and you have too much personality. So you got to go into something else. Maybe you should consider sales. So I actually went into medical device sales and you know, my, it's, it's interesting because people were like, why are you selling this and doing that? You have this biomechanical engineering degree and an MBA. And I was working towards a career in medical device sales. Um, and for those that don't know, it's a very entrepreneurial endeavor. You basically run your own territory, you have your own business, but you also get to go into surgery with surgeons. You get to negotiate with the hospitals. You sell to surgeons. You also get to basically advise and consult on surgery. I was a navigated like robotic surgery training center. Uh, here. So I trained uh, reps that would come in and, and learn from that. So, I, you know, it was a pretty high level role. And, you know, really what, what engineering taught me was, you know, how to, how to work through problems because you make assumptions, you work through a problem, you iterate, you basically try again and see if you can do it better. And that's what surgery is. And that's what sales is, is having a conversation and then figuring out, Hey, how can we solve this problem and do it a better way? So it taught me that the other thing that, you know, it, it taught me was that is in, you know, I wasn't the smartest guy in the room. So I had to form networks and connections with the smartest people to figure out how to solve these problems. So I learned how to communicate. I learned how to network. I learned how to form teams. I learned how to solve problems. And all of those things helped me throughout my career. 
I coached, I mentored people and they all kind of flow into what we do now. When we look at deals, I was just looking at spreadsheets here before I hopped on with you. I got to have a, a tough conversation here in about 45 minutes uh, with a member of the team. You have to say things sensitively. You have to be considerate of everybody's you know, role in different things. These are all important things, whether you're a professional, whether you're an entrepreneur, or whether even you're a parent as well. So I'm glad you mentioned your book a couple minutes back about make, keep, and grow money. So great yeah. book. I want to say that yeah. unlike other books that just trumpet multifamily, for example, if you're a multifamily yeah. operator, you know, you really do take, I think, a more holistic approach. And I think that's helpful to people because people do have various needs. I'd like to ask you if there's anything you'd like to add. And if not, then uh, just tell us how has that helped your career as a multifamily operator to have a book out there, Kindle Unlimited? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, here's the book, Next Level Income. If you want to get a free copy, go to nextlevelincome.com and click on the book link. And if you put your address in, we, we even send a copy out. So a couple things. Um, I wrote it. Yes, it is about value add multifamily, but it's really about, it's, you know, if you kind of go up through the levels, it's about value add multifamily on the surface, but it's really about the value add strategy in real estate and how I've used it to achieve financial independence. But then it's also a game plan. It's a map, if you will, for taking money, like making money and then transforming it through the process of properly saving and structuring, you know, insurance and tax structures and legal structures, and then investing it. So it's really more George, about how do you make money, keep money, and then ultimately grow your money? Then specifically a multifamily strategy, um, you know, and that's what that's kind of how I designed it. Um, it's not it's not long. You can read it probably in about you know an hour and a half to two hours. So I wanted people to be able to read it on a short flight, you know, kind of an average length flight. And then yeah, you know, I wrote it, and one of our passions, the reason we started Next Level Income, which is really our education business is to curate information to help people achieve financial independence because there's such a need for financial literacy in this country today. And I believe that if you have financial abundance, you are a better person. You you can go do what you are meant to do, what you have, you know, your God-given talents are meant to do with the universe, you know, conspires to help you do is the alchemist book that my wife gave me when we first started dating talks about. And what I found is the book's great because it helps people learn about me, learn about our business. So it's good for business. You know, it cost me, you know, it, it cost, you know, I spent many thousands of dollars um, sending out free books. But as I mentioned to you, people are like, well, Chris, that's, that's silly. What if somebody gets a free copy of the book and, you know, they don't, they don't want to work with you. Well, great. If I can save 30 minutes of my time for say 10 bucks, I'll take that deal all day long. You know, my work, my time is worth more than 15 or $20 an hour. So if I can buy back 30 minutes of my time by giving somebody a copy of my book, terrific. And that, that means that maybe they, they don't think we're a good fit or maybe they don't like me. Okay. But maybe they learn something from it and it helps them. And that that's meaningful to me. And I've had a lot of people reach out and say, Chris, I learned this. I just had a coaching client reach out today. He's like, man, he goes, all this stuff we're doing. I, I negotiated this new role he's making. He went from making about $150,000 a year to at a minimum, he's going to make $217,000 a year this year. Um, so that's really impactful for a young man who you know is just getting started in his in his career and he's working on a uh, side business as well um, from the same concepts that we teach in the book and then well if somebody says hey i really like what what you know you're doing and we'd love to work with you as a client 
well, then that's obviously going to be um, beneficial as well. So I think, you know, whether somebody doesn't, doesn't like what's in the book and doesn't reach out, that's a win. If somebody likes what's in the book, doesn't reach out, but benefits from it, that's a win. And hey, it's a real win if somebody reads it, learns about us, and then ends up becoming partners with us in some way, shape, or form. Yeah, absolutely huge to to get yeah. your ideas down on paper too. I think it really helps you to figure out who you are and becoming an author. The process thereof, I think, is is huge. I know uh, very unfortunately today we lost one of the great investors of the world, Charlie Munger. Charles and Munger, yeah. he's big about that. He was always encouraging people, you gotta, you know, write down your investment thesis. He was reading all the time. His children described him as a yeah. book with arms. And yeah, it just kind of uh, looked like a book with arms, didn't he? <laughs> maybe a little bit, but yeah, just really, I got to say, I already missed the guy. He had uh, an amazing oh, investment yeah. thesis. And I think that, oh, yeah. you know, obviously you put yourself in the top ranks by going out there and becoming an author. So I hope that our oh, listeners that are thinking about going out and doing it, do it, do it, do it. Yes, it does cost Absolutely. money not just to send it out, yeah. but uh, at least the way I do it, you're going to need developmental editor. Uh, you get your own copy editor, et cetera. I mean, you you really do have to get some professionals on board. Uh, otherwise, it takes just five, 10 times as much time as it should take. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, George, I think there's a lot of benefit into getting your voice out there. If you're listening today, you probably have a valuable story, and that story can provide value to other people. It can encourage those people. It can provide comfort to those people. Um, sometimes, you know, I think... Um, I remember uh, I was I was dating a girl in college and she made a comment about how lucky I was because I had this Honda Accord that I had, I had uh, taken out a loan from my grandfather to buy. And she thought I was just some rich kid and she didn't know that my father passed away. She didn't know that, you know, we lived very frugally and, you know, my grandmother was making my clothes and, you know, we were on social security for a period of time. And um, it was, you know, we didn't, I wouldn't say we were poor, but we were for sure blue collar. Um, and it's just funny when people look at you and say like, you're, you're lucky and they don't realize some of the hardships that, that people go through. And it's those hardships, which I love, you know, I loved it when I um, first learned about you and the name of, and the thesis of your podcast, you know, those hardships are, are what really forge, you know, love the strength it. and forge the individuals that people become. And I think anybody that's successful, you know, the vast, vast majority know that's those hardships that make successful people. I love it. That's so true and so deep. I, I wish there was something I could get on, add on to that, but uh, we'll just have to move on because I, I think you said <laughs> it perfectly. But uh, one of the things I did want to move on to yeah. is your unique approach to investing. Yeah. Uh, so I know that markets, we all know that markets have sort of thrown a monkey wrench into many an operator's plan. What are Indeed. you doing to protect your investors in today's yes. market? Yeah. So let me step back. So I, I think in terms of frameworks. So whenever I put a thesis together, and, and this could be investing, this can be for nutrition, for diet, it could be for training, for, for bike races, it could be as a parent, it could be polit politics. I, I want to form a framework that is durable. And a durable framework necessitates challenge. Like we were talking about, like if you want to forge a framework, you have to challenge that framework. That's why I think, you know, to get, you know, kind of philosophical here for a moment, you know, people that think, you know, oh, I'm, I'm of this certain political persuasion and I'm not going to talk to people of another political persuasion. How do you challenge your framework? How do you determine, you know, if you really have a strong framework and, you know, I think 
that's the same thing with investing. So whether you compare it to training or nutrition or politics or even religion, you know, so I'm getting real, you know, real controversial here, maybe, but investing is pretty simple compared to those things, in my opinion, to form a framework. So you have to say, hey, how is this framework going to be durable? And it's formed from the bottom up. So I look at real estate cycles. So I think, you know, I strongly believe that real estate goes in 18 and a half year, kind of 18.6 year cycles. And I track those cycles and at different points in the cycle, you have different things that you experience. I also, you know, strongly believe in real estate and really income producing real estate as a vehicle towards wealth. And that's why, you know, 20 to 30% of, of the super rich, the super high net worth or ultra high net worth individuals have money in income producing real estate, you know, so kind of going from the bottom up, um, you're like looking at those things. And then you say, well, what are the, what are the tenants that we apply to have durable investments? So number one, we like you know, the majority of our investments are value add real estate. So you have investments that are producing cash flow. So we have a deal right now under contract. It's four mobile home parks in South Carolina. They're going into our mobile home park fund. So they are cash flow positive from day one. We are going to put debt. I think it's a 60% LTV. So I got a bunch of different, I'm looking at a bunch of different stuff right now, but it's, let's say 60% loan to value on that property. So reasonable loan to value value add opportunity, we can go in and we can improve operations and we can improve the overall aesthetics and quality of the parks and the homes in those parks. So we have a component to improve that. These are all parts of the value add strategy. It's got great tax benefits. So we can, we can take all of those pieces. So I like all of those things as part of my investment thesis or framework. And I think, you know, keeping our debt low or reasonable on our properties, like all of our properties have somewhere between 50 and 70% loan to value. So we're not in a bad position in any of our properties today. Now, some have suffered from interest rate increases or the inability to refinance at a favorable rate. Yes, but we're not in danger of losing a property because we're way out of, out of line with respect to loan to value and those sorts of things. Um, so that's just an example of how you know, some of that, that framework and, and those tenants that we follow have, have helped us in today's market. Do you have any favorite underwriting metrics? Favorite underwriting metrics? Well, I think as I talk about in my book, so kind of going back, people were like, well, Chris, when did you move from you know medical device sales to real estate? And as I mentioned, you know, I, I really started as an investor first. I bought my first property at 21 and then I needed capital. So I got into the medical device space. I got into the medical de- device space because I wanted to be in a career that had great demographic trends. So I knew the baby boomers were getting old. They were the most, they were the biggest, most affluent, most active generation in, in recorded history. So, you know, why not go into orthopedic sales? This is something that, you know, the baby boomers were going to want and need to stay active as they, you know, took their wealth and, you know, continued to enjoy it later on in their years. And that was a great business to be in for a couple of decades. Demographics are the undergirder of everything I look at, George. So I want to be in a market that is is growing, that has net in migration, that has great business diversity, that has a strong business climate. All these things kind of flow, you know, around and in and around, in and through, you know, the demographic trends of an area. And then we can get really deep into, you know, like kind of loan to value and, you know, all different kind of metrics with respect on the financial side. But I think really that's the easy part. The hard part is identifying those markets and those asset classes that are going to be on a rising tide, not like, you know, what are these little, you know, financial ripples going to do to it? 
Yeah, that's huge. So I thought you might mention low breaking and occupancy because I know that's something you've spoken about in the past. It's huge because yes. when I look yeah. at properties and deals, and you know, we all hear a lot through the grapevine. So many deals are getting into trouble. They might have 80 or 90% break-even occupancy. And I believe that uh, your deals tend to have a much lower break-even occupancy. Yeah. So typically, historically, we've had, you know, most of our break-even occupancies around like 60% for our multifamily deals. So, you know, even if you have a rising interest rate environment, if you start at 60%, you know, and that goes up, you, you have a lot of room to move. Um, our mobile home parks that we buy, you know, we can run these properties. We're taking over properties at 50% occupancy and they're still making money. So yeah, I really like, you know, low break, break even occupancy is good. Um, if you combine low break even occupancy with reasonable debt, then you, you start off in a really strong position typically. Okay, so far, yeah, you mentioned the low debt, perfect, uh, low break even occupancy and demographic trends. So it goes hand in hand with the demographic trends is your markets. So I know a lot of investors, operators, they'll say, hey, if the deal makes sense, I'll invest in the market. But I know you're very picky about your markets. Why don't you tell us why you're so selective and tell us how do you pick a market? Yes. So, well, it, it does depend. So if we're talking about a multifamily market, George, we're typically looking at a city or an MSA of a million or more that has positive net in migration that's going to exceed the growth rate of the US in general. It's going to have significant economic diversity. So that means we don't have, you know, one business or one specific industry that is taking up the the majority of uh, the employers in that area. So you want to see great, you know, like let's give an example to put that into uh to illustrate that. Houston. I was invested in a deal in Houston. I was just about to ask you. That's the one everybody thinks about. What do you, what do you think about when you yeah. think Houston, right? Oil. Oil. Well, and yeah, I could say it 10 ruling. years ago, it was oil, oil, oil. And that, that was detrimental when you know the, the hurricane came through and created some issues and then oil prices dropped. It was a real challenge. But now there's significant more diversity in Houston. You have tons of medical. You still have a lot of energy, which I think is a great industry to have. You have, uh, you have schools down there. So you have a lot of, again, that's where the pro-business climate comes in. So, and we have, we have a couple dozen metrics we look at for those. Um, for those things. But if we go to our car wash investments, it's going to be different. So we actually we actually do use our demographic data because we have a membership driven model. And we know that the demographics correlate strongly to membership sales. But then we also layer on traffic counts of how they go by. So we have kind of a, a bimodal um, underwriting process where we run traffic counts as well as our multifamily underwriting through to look at that. And we can take a, a really small town with you know not a lot of people and have a very successful car wash in that sort of market where we would not buy a multifamily property in that market. And then a market like Florence, South Carolina, we may buy a mobile home park there. We may not buy a car wash there and we may not buy a multifamily property there. So there's certain, there's certain knobs and levers that you're going to turn and pull based on, you know, the specific investment. And that's where, you know, you have to kind of decide, you know, what you're going after. And then I, I do think, you know, if you have spec if you have uh, specific knowledge of a market, like you live there, like I live in Asheville, North Carolina, I bought a car wash here because I know a lot about the area where I bought that car wash, right? We have a super affluent area on one side. We have another um, less affluent area on the other side. 
You have people that want to buy single washes for their cars that are coming through that maybe can't afford a monthly wash, but these affluent customers don't want their car touched. It's a touchless wash. So we added memberships there. So we kept both sides of the demographic equation there, you know, cause I, I kind of know that, that area cause it's two miles down the road from me. Well, that's huge. You're already getting into some of the value add that you can do with the car wash. Yeah. But for those of us that may be more interested only in say multifamily, by the way, I also invest in car wash. Yeah. I think they're great. Uh, give us a quick rundown. Why car washes? Yeah. So you know, I, I talked about the 18 and a half year real estate cycle, um, right, George? So we have different different assets that perform better. I love multifamily. I love self-storage. I love mobile home parks. I think that you know we need housing. We have a housing issue in this country. I want to supply housing to people. I think that's a great long-term demographic trend. But we've had really strong returns in the multifamily and self-storage market here in the past few years. And I don't, I don't expect the same returns going forward necessarily over the next five years. I think it's still going to be a great area to invest, but how do you get, you know, how do you get higher cash flows? And, you know, that's where I think you can look at operating real estate, you know, like car washes, like I would say mobile homes are kind of in there as well. Short-term rentals is another one. And then uh, like senior housing, I would throw into that bucket too. But if you notice, like all of these things are really a business, you're really running a business in addition to owning the real estate. And you know, you have to consider that as an investor. Do you want to have an operating company in addition to your real estate business? You know, that that's not necessarily for everybody, as you kind of pointed out. Yeah, absolutely. All right, outstanding. Thank you so much, Chris, for taking the time to share yeah. your knowledge and experience with our audience. This has been fun, George. Thank you so much for having me and best of luck to you out there. 